Hello, I'm Marcus Skips, Commissioning Editor at Galantz, and with me today is Tom Toner, author of The Promise of the Child and The Weight of the World. Hello, Tom. Hi, Marcus. How are you doing? Fine, thanks for having me. We're here to talk about both of your books, but um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how it feels to see your second one hitting the shelves, compared to the um, experience of your it's first very, book. It's very, very different. Um, the first time, um, actually, it was, I, I always worry that I'm going to feel like this when I have a baby, because the first time I felt nothing. I held the book in my nightshade, my American publisher delivered it. And I put it on my kitchen table, and I looked at it, and I felt n- absolute nothing, like a psychopath. Really? Yeah, like no, which, no emotions. Which you claim not to be, generally. No, no, no. I, I, well, I've done the test. I did the Daily Mail online test. I'm not a psychopath. Oh, well, that's, that's scientific. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I looked at this thing, and I just, I just had no emotions. You know, I'd worked for years on it, and picked it up, and just it, within half an hour, I put my coffee on it, and uh, forgotten about it. And, and did it kick in at any point? Was it no, never. Not, not even your publication party, really or weird. it was like it was like a Don McCullen photo where you see that shell shocked Vietnamese the guy. Uh, I just had no nothing going on inside my brain for the whole first book. Well, that I mean that explains a lot. I suspect <laughs> not in the way you intended, but yeah. Uh, but the second one, all the emotions are there. So how I'm interesting! Very happy. How interesting! Yeah, it's really strange. I don't know why it happened. Maybe it was just because I—I I don't know. I just never thought it was going to happen, and I didn't. Do, do you think, on some level, you literally didn't believe it? I don't know. I think I was just so, so sort of shinly buggered by writing it all and doing it, and, and having realised that I'd done what I set out to do, and then I kind of felt like everything else was a bonus, and so it didn't deserve an emotion. You know, <laughs> you saved them up. Yeah, and now I'm happy because I spent two years on Way of the World, solid, um, hitting tables and driving myself nuts, and, and you know, and now it feels like now there's a routine and a pattern, and I know what to do and I know how to do it, and something happens at the end of it, and I'm allowed to have a nice time. You know, that's that's your moment when it when it pays yeah, off. Yeah, where I just go right. Well, I'm gonna have some drinks. Even though I've been drinking the whole time I've been writing, <laughs> which 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 also may explain. <laughs> no, no, no. If I drink while I'm writing, I tell dirty jokes in the in the manuscript, and, I, and uh, it's really awful. I'm so glad my agent he looked at it first time, pointed it out because it would have been a really bad section of the book. <laughs> so, um, should we talk a little bit about what the books are about? Do you want to give the the, the brief pitch for Promise of the Child and the, uh, indeed the Amaranthine Spectrum? Yeah. Uh, the, well, uh, the Promise of the Child is the first book of the Amaranthine Spectrum, a series of unspecified lengths <laughs> um, that uh, begins at the tail end of the 147th century in about 12,500 years' time. Um, there are lots of monsters and, and various spin-offs of humanity and tin spaceships and singing sea monsters and hollowed out planets and you know people deal with silk currency and all sorts of weird stuff and um, giants and whatnot um, and it's uh, basically a very uh, an opti- I, I would say a very optimistic view of the next uh, 10,000 years of culmination um, but it's not just set there, is it? I mean, you have you have other periods that are mm. represented. Well, yeah. I mean, it's set in and around the world, which has become the old world, and the uh, neighbouring 23 stars, which are the firmament, um, as well as the sort of ring of grindingly poor planets and moons all around called the Investiture. Um, but it also, there are also flashbacks. They go back to 14th century Prague and 17th century England, and uh, there's one flashback in the second one that goes back to, uh, you know, 300... BC or something, I can't remember now. Um, and 
Yeah, it's kind of like a big, big, long look, a big, long explore of the la of the the last and the next few thousand years. And sort of the key, the key plot point is the um, invention of the machine, which yeah. sets everything going. Do you want yeah. to talk a bit about how that impacts? Uh, well, it's a it's a twist. You're not supposed to know about it. All right, well, don't give, don't give it away then. No spoilers. <laughs> I mean, you can know what it is, but I mean, that's why I just, that's why I just called it the machine. They don't know what the bloody thing is, but I, I didn't want to tell them what the thing was. You do know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> just checking. <laughs> and I know exactly how it works in a very implausible way, um, but uh, but everyone wants it. It's very special. So yes, the the universe devolves <laughs> into a sort of a sort of war. Over. I wouldn't say it's a war. I don't like wars in fiction because I think a lot of fiction is obsessed with war. And I think I'd like to I'd like to point out there's oh, there are wars in the background, just as there are wars in the background today. Mm. And you can have people having incredibly pleasant lives to the background of colossal, horrible wars. And uh, I I'd never describe it as a book set in a time of war. Okay. It's set in a time of busyness. You know. You know. It's meant to be the amaranthine in the book. The you know. The, the immortal Homo sapiens—they call it the Quiet Age—and yet, the galaxy for the nearest twenty-three stars is filled with billions upon billions of of life forms. You know, all uh, evolved from mammals, um, and it's just a very busy, very kind of colourful age where anything can happen. And I guess it's quite easy for the, the as you say, immortal Homo sapiens, amaranthine, to believe it is quiet because they can they stand above a lot of it. They don't care. They don't give a shit. They, they, they have no interest in, effectively, the third world of their community. Um, yeah. They're, and they're so sort of sleepy and mindless and, and, and selfish that uh, it doesn't interest them at all. Apart from when these little um, primate creatures, the prison, start knocking on their door and getting a bit too close for comfort. And that's why a lot of the plot develops. And you, you follow um, various points of view, various main characters, as it were, from all sort of uh, iterations of humanity. Do you want to talk through your main characters a little bit? Uh, sure. Well, we'll be in, uh, in what's known as the Tenth Province, which is a swelteringly hot part of the world, uh, we meet an enormous nine-foot giant called Lycast. Um, Interesting. I always thought it was Lycaster. Uh, I'm probably saying it wrong because it's a horticultural name, isn't it? So anyone who knows anything about horticulture probably knows exactly not, how Which is not me. Well, I don't either. Yeah. So uh, who knows? No, Up right. to the reader. Yeah. Um, I did have to do it, actually, with my American audiobook guy. We had to sit down and go through all the names. <laughs> really? And, I and there are some I names in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. There are some weird names. And um, um, we just sort of winged it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so like Ast or like Ast? Yeah, like Ast, enormous um, giant, uh, part of the Melius, Homo Melius, which literally means better man. Uh, whether he's evolved or if he's genetically engineered, no one knows. I'm never going to talk about it. It's not, it's not to do with the story. Um, I, ideally, I would like to set the books in 100,000 years instead of 12 and a half. I think they're too outlandish for 12 and a half thousand years' time. What, why didn't you? Because by the time I made the decision, I decided that it was law. I did a George Lucas and went, no, it's done. Right. <laughs> this is, I can't make it easy it's on myself. Done. And if I want to do future stuff, I have to bugger up the old ones to make them fit. You know, so yeah, I did a George Lucas. Fair enough. Um, and um, what, what was the, the question? I think we're still trying to work out who Lycaster <laughs> is. Right, yeah, so he's, he's the sort of 
He's this uh, large, clumpy, ungainly youth. He's about 50, but they lead very long lives. But beautiful. You beautiful, say ungainly. Beautiful. He's, he's uh, courted across the provinces by people who want his hand in marriage. And he finds it all unbearable because he's so shy and uh, sort of on the autistic spectrum. And um, he gets thrown into all these events that he has no control over. And, and he finds utterly horrible. Um, and... Uh, you know, meets all the kind of grotesques of his province and his world along the way. And that gives you a chance to really uh, demonstrate how you think the Earth is going to, yeah, in some ways... he's our guide. He's our guide because he doesn't really know anything either, so we, we follow him. Um, and to a great many readers' frustration, he doesn't know anything. Um, I think they would have preferred to know it all. That's interesting because, for me, it felt that... In his sections, you were learning with him. He is, he is effectively a country naïf who is thrust into society and the world and the way things work and realises that life is not as simple as he thought. And yeah. I think as, as, a, as a reader, that was what I engaged with. It's interesting you say that some people... Well... I mean, um, there's a lot going on in the book. There's yeah. a lot to explain or yeah. leave unexplained. Yeah. Um, the second book, I think, is a lot easier to navigate. Um, with the help of a 14-page glossary. <laughs> uh, and apart from Lycast, Lycaster, I, I'm going to have to decide one. You said Lycast, so I'm going to I go with that. I Lycast, but then I say everything wrong, so I don't know. Um, but you follow various other viewpoints. Well, one of the Amaranth thing, for example. Oh, yeah. Satiris, Satiris, uh, uh, Amaranthine, um, 12,500 years old, um, on the verge of madness, just lost his sister, um, basically being kind of prepped for uh, becoming ruler of the firmament. Um, As the oldest of the... He's not the oldest. The, the, the law of succession, which is a very terrible law, means that the oldest rules um, and can be enforced because the oldest is the most powerful due to the changing nature of the brain, um, But uh, which wouldn't make any sense to anyone who's not read the book. Um, but he is plucked uh, favoured by this by this shadowy antagonist, um, Aaron the Longlife, um, who decides that he will best serve him over the course of the next year or so that he needs to enact his grand his nefarious grand plot revenge. Yeah, um, and then we got Galdesiul, Knight of the Stars, uh, a sort of grumpy little gnome-like creature who uh, is contracted to steal this shell. This he, engine he's a, he's a mercenary. About. He's a well, he's a knight. Um, and he's quite old-fashioned, and he's quite um, stroppy, and uh, doesn't have much truck with um, creative types or, <laughs> or thoughtful types. Um, he's very good at his job, does what he's told to do. Um, it's only in the second book that we realise that he has lots of motives behind it. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about influences. I mean, um, it feels to me there's some Jack Vance in there. It feels to me there's some uh, Ian, there Ian was, and Banks. I've never read a Jack Vance book. Really? I've never read a Gene Wolfe book. Uh, <laughs> you, you, are, you should be drummed out of the Galantz community. That's it. This, this interview read, is I've over. I've never read Frank Herbert. You've never read Dune? I've never read Dune. I think I've read the first two pages. Uh, it was in someone's bathroom at a house I woke up in one day. Uh, it was a friend's house. There's a story. It wasn't weird. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, uh, there's some Banks. There's some Stephen King sort of Dark Towerish stuff. I love Ian Banks. Um, there's some. There's some Ian McEwan. I was reading a lot of Ian McEwan when I first started writing. Interesting. Child, and it made all the dialogue really awkward. Um, <laughs> so I've stopped reading Ian McEwan now. Um, 
there's I love Colm Toybin. My oh yes. favorite he's my favorite writer of anyone. Uh, well, and Hilary Mantel. And um, do you, you sent the book to Mantel? I did, and she gave me a free quote. She was lovely. Um, or she was apparently lovely. Her agent said she was very happy to give me a quote. Um, um, uh, you mean you mean a, um, allowing you to use a quote from one of her books as the principal? Uh, 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 not not the, a, um, the best book ever written, Hilary Mantel quote. No, yeah, yeah. This was, I think this is what confused, yeah, I think people thought Hilary Mantel was drumming, bigging up my book, and that, yeah, that would never happen. Well, you never um, know. But, uh, uh, yeah, Colm Torben, just in his really measured, really ghostly, atmospheric, sort of really dense, uh, everything's kind of dripping with, I don't know, my favourite book in the world is The Master. Have you read The Master? Uh, some time ago, but yes. Yeah, and, and it's just, what I just love it. It's every single sentence on there you can taste in your mouth. It's so well written. You know you know when your mouth is yes, just, yes. You're, you're reading and you just say it to yourself because it sounds so good. That's you very know? interesting because these are not the kind of names that science fiction authors no, write in giant a, space I'm opera a, normally. I'm a, normally. I'm a crap example of a sci-fi author. You, well, better or an interesting one. I mean, you know, I've read my Douglas Adams. I've done my, I've done my, my, I did the entry level exam to get into this job. <laughs> you know, I read Hobbit. I loved the Hobbit. I read all the Lord of the Rings and all that stuff. You know, I loved all that. But you've never um, read Dune. Nope. None of them. I'm, None of them. I'm astounded. Um, I've had a good stab at Brian Aldiss, but his writing really turns me off. I love his ideas, but his writing turns me off. Interesting. Um, Greybeard is, I think, the only Aldiss I've really, really got. I've tried others and, and seen what was being done, but not always quite appreciated it. But Greybeard Heliconia was such a great idea for such a huge book. I'm ashamed to say I have bounced off Heliconia three times. Yeah, there are I many books get, I can say that to. Couldn't get into it. Um, I wish I could. Who else? I read Alistair Reynolds. I, I like Alistair Reynolds. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and um, obviously my, my esteemed contemporaries, uh, Al Robertson and John Wallace and people like that. You know, um, but yeah, I'm pretty rubbish. I'm only just getting into all the all the new stuff. I mean, I read a bit of Anne Leckie. I, I've start, I started Three Body Problems. Oh yes, this is um, new. But um, I'm a hypocrite. I just can't get into all the world building. It's too much. Which is, which is to be fair, a fairly <laughs> a major nuisance. part of your novel. It's a nuisance. Well, I, I just write this stuff and then uh, and then realise that I'd never read it. <laughs> <laughs> but you, the listener, should. Um, yeah. You said you said uh, indeterminate series. Yes. But you have two out and you're writing a third at the moment. I have plans in, in a lot of notebooks for um, between 10 and 15. Which is um, ambitious, shall yeah, we say. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm pretty sure that I'll keel over long before then. I'll do a, I'll do a Robert Jordan. And, um, but, but a Robert Jordan that no one's heard of. Um, so, yeah. Whoever wants to, anyone who wants to finish it, they can. You know, Brandon Sanderson can come back in and finish my films. Oh, we can raise it with him. <laughs> yeah. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about book three? Uh, Without three. mentioning the title, which, we, ha- which we haven't decided on yet. yet. Uh, book three um, is the Return of the Jedi to my series. It is the it has all the monsters and it has all the color and it has all the Jim Henson creature shop um, <laughs> going on. You know, all the kind of really bad puppets bobbing around in the background and every one of them gets an action figure even though you don't know what they're called and they just make it up as they you know they give yes. them like a name of like the stage manager or the cameraman I, 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 <laughs> I suspect nowadays every single character in Star Wars has a well thought through backstory yeah, yeah. precisely so that they can do a series of comics yeah. about it or a... and really it's just a lump of like foam rubber with some pulleys attached you know whatever um, and so book three is really the 
book three is very grandiose because it it's all designed with a view to getting bigger and bigger and bigger and fractally just expanding. At the same time, it's 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 developing so kind of exponentially that you, you, when you write a book, you get a kind of teaser trailer in your head. Yes. And you see in your mind a sort of mashup of quick scenes and colors and images. And you, that's the book. That's how you visualize the book. As one, like when you think of a movie, you think of a few images and, uh, and uh, say I thought of Inception. I think of the snowy scene, you know? Yeah. And I think of, what's his name, tumbling around a corridor. So you're and saying... I think of the soundtrack. And that's my three things that I think of when I think and of And you're saying you get that for your books? I get that for each book. Before you write them? Well, as I'm writing them, yeah. And, um, and because I've written book three completely in note form, I have it already. I know exactly what's going to happen, exactly how it's going to happen, all the crazy shit that's going to go down. And so I have this teaser trailer in my head and it's much more interesting than the other two teaser trailers oh that's a good sign <laughs> so yeah i know what the teaser trailers are and i've got my book four as well uh, and that's mad but um so you you write longhand first uh, yeah i like to work up the scene um get it all done in the notebook because i feel like if i just go into it it's it's got it's so half-baked even if i even if i know what i'm doing so half baked, and sometimes I, even if I've written it up and written it up and done it over and over again in longhand, and then I go into it. Sometimes I get halfway through the scene and think, no, this needs more longhand. Interesting. So I back out again and go. go and do do you rewrite the whole thing again, or yeah, or you kind of cannibalize it and pull out some of the kidneys and use them somewhere else and stuff, hmm. you know? Um, yeah, <laughs> slightly more deathy metaphor than yeah, what you see, but yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I just. I have a terror of doing something that's not finished yet uh, and, of, and of committing to something that's not finished yet because I think it's such a waste of time. It's probably a very unproductive way to write a book because I write, it means that I write very slowly. But it means that I, I feel like when I have written that first draft, it's an extremely sound first draft. And, I mean, you write long books as well. There's no... Well, compared to people like... I mean, I've got... Um, I see quite a lot of uh, people like Brad Bulio, Bully, Bolia, Bolia on um, on Twitter and Facebook and whatnot, and he writes two hundred fifty thousand word books. But then he's all he does the opposite of what I do. I think he goes straight in and just plows through, and just plows through it. Whereas I sort of skip around, really nervous and, and squeamish. You can't and see. Go, oh, oh, maybe no, no, no. Yeah, you can't see Tom <laughs> doing his skitting around <laughs> squeamishly <laughs> action. It's a sight to see, I tell you. Yeah, uh, and. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure if it's the right thing to do, but it seemed to serve me well in the second book. People seem to be enjoying the second book, so I think I'll stick with it. <laughs> and uh, do you have ideas outside the amaranthine? I mean, there's, yes. there are so many ideas in this. Every page brings a new, a new, a new wonder, a new, a new thing. But do you know? Do you ever feel the urge to write down in gritty crime set in 1990s London? Or oh no, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I've got a few ideas. I've got about three that I would like to make into books that have nothing to do with spectrum. Uh, two of which would have nothing to do with science fiction at all. Um, I understand such books exist, but I've never quite understood why. Yeah. Um, well, that's the only types of books I read that are non-science fiction. Books, yes. so, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, there's things I want to write, but I haven't got time. You, know, you can't write three books at the same time. Well, most of your authors can actually they seem to, uh, but no, we'll be happy if you just finish off the next one. That would be lovely, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really, I am excited about leaving the spectrum, but I admit I'm going to miss it. I want to stay in it 
uh, although it would probably drive me insane. You know, I'd be crapping my pants and, and screaming. And <laughs> well, there's an image to leave you on. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so, to summarise, then one reason for why the listener should pick up Promise of the Child. I feel like it explores an avenue of science fiction that isn't really explored by many people. I I would like to read more of what I write, probably because I'm not a very adventurous reader. But I would like to read more far, far, far future stuff. And I don't, what is there doesn't seem to really go the distance, although you get things like Alistair Reynolds, who do who did, who went six million years in the future with... Um, yeah, do you remember that? Yes. And you get... I'm trying to think what else has got. But yeah, nothing really seems to really dip its toes into the water beyond about three or four thousand years. Mm. And I've gone twelve and a half, and I think it's a sort of... It's an unexplored section of the future. Um, I don't know if that's a good reason to read it, but give it a go if you're interested to see what could happen in twelve and a half thousand years' time. Tom Toner, Promise of the Child and the Weight of the World. Thank you very much. Thank you.